Well, today was intended to be uh, a guest speaker for your delectation and delight, but unfortunately, plans had to change, and this person dropped out. So you've got me again this morning. Obviously, lots of joy uh, for that. And, um, and so actually, as I was praying for this morning, we're going to spend a half term looking at the topic of healing. And I've been thinking about this for a long time. I'm going to call it Wounded Healers for a whole series of reasons. It's quite ironic being called Wounded Healers because I've started a series on the topic of healing and I've been in bed for the last two days feeling sick. So uh, I'm in a good place to minister this morning because that seems to be the place where God's calling us to. And we're looking at this topic of healing and forgiveness for this half term. And today I'm calling this morning's talk, Healing the Whole Person. It's from this brilliant passage in Mark 2, a really well-known passage of Scripture. Now let me just briefly set the scene for this passage. It's a really well-known miracle. Jesus is in a house in Capernaum. And it may have been the house that's belonging to Peter or Andrew. But actually if you read the modern commentators, including someone like Tom Wright... There's a group of them that are moving to the view that actually this may have been the house that Jesus used as his home to minister from, that was given to him by friends. It's conjecture, I know, but it's an interesting theory to think about this morning as you think about this story, that these people were probably digging with their hands through a roof in Jesus' own house. You may want to have a think about that amongst the different things we'll think about this morning. In any case, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the five different actors in this particular story of this Jesus healing this man. So first of all, we have in verse 1 and 2, we notice that Jesus is drawing a crowd. He's provoking the kind of reaction that today we would associate with celebrity status. The crowds are here. And they're listening to Jesus preach the word of God. God's kingdom was breaking in. Jesus said, and the blessings associated with God's kingdom, the future age breaking in, was received, able to receive now because Jesus was present. You can be forgiven now. Now. Not in the future, but now. You can have healing now. You can have peace now. Why? Because they were in presence of the king. And when I read this story of the crowds pushing in to see Jesus, in, possibly in Jesus' own place of home, I think to myself, wouldn't it be great if St. Swithin's was like a Mark II church, in which people crowded in because they wanted to hear, they longed to hear the word of God. And they wanted to experience the reality of the forgiveness of God, the healing of God, and the peace of God. And as we read Mark 2, it's also clear for, to see that the, what, some of the kind of much is written about church growth. If Jesus is present in the church, people will come. People will come if Jesus is present. If Jesus is there, the crowds will be there. If the people in the church welcome Jesus, if people in church long to follow Jesus and doing all they can to follow Jesus, if people in the church are doing the things that Jesus did and relating in the way that Jesus related to other people, then people will come. 
And if you can find Jesus in the church, and in Jesus find forgiveness for your sins, healing for your marriage relationship, or your relationships with your children, or your parents, or your grandparents, healing for your body, for your soul, for inner healing, church growth will happen because God is present and at work in his church. But if Jesus is not present in the church, then all the gimmicks, all the programs, all the strategies in the world will not work. Because if you can't find Jesus in the church, then frankly, why bother going to church? You could stay at home on a Sunday morning, take a long cup of coffee, get the Sunday papers in front of you, just have some time to yourself. Go and hit the golf course. Go and meet up with your mates. Spend more time in your beloved garden. Spend time, maybe increasingly difficult time, with your wife and kids. You don't get the time that you want to. Actually, you could just spend more time with your, your wife and kids. For me, it's always been the case, apart from when I had to go to church, when I was the son of a vicar. Obviously, I did have to go to church. For me, there's really only one reason to go to church. And that's to meet with Jesus. To meet with Jesus present in word, in spirit, in ministry, and in other people. And when we read Mark 2, I hope there's a hunger within inside of you. The grandson, you say, Lord, make some Swithens like a Mark 2 church. Make some Swithens like a Mark 2 church. Secondly, in verses 3 to 5, we find, we see these friends of this paralyzed man. Wouldn't you love to have friends like this paralyzed man? You know, when you're sick or when you're weak, or wouldn't you love, love to have a few friends who would stick by, with, stick by you and would literally carry you to the presence of Jesus? Could you ask for better friends than this. The test of someone's friendship with you or with I is not how they relate to you when things are going overwhelmingly well, when that person can contribute something to your lives, when someone else can love you the way you think you deserve to be loved. Anyone can be a good friend in mutual benefit, where there's mutual benefit. Anyone can be a good friend. The real test of friendship is actually when you're doing really badly, when you actually bring nothing to the table, when you're sick, when you're in crisis, when you're grieving, that's when you discover who your true friends are. A true friend is someone who doesn't drop you when you're in a time of need. So let me ask you a personal question at the beginning of 2020. Are you a good friend to some people? Is there someone or some people in your life this year that you need to be a better friend to? Have you got a relative who's living in a nursing home, for example? Someone maybe who used to be part of this congregation and you've just sort of dropped them? What about calling that person? Praying for that person? Visiting that person? You see, this type of Mark II friendship, this kind of loyalty to people who are ill, 
of people who are doing badly in their lives. This faithfulness to people in need was a thing that distinguished the Christians in the early church from their pagan neighbors. There's a fascinating book by a professor of sociology called Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. And he says one of the reasons why the early Christianity spread so rapidly as so as to conquer the Roman Empire in three centuries is how Christians cared for and related to people who were ill. For example, when the plagues came in, non-Christians, the, the non-Christians were afraid to visit somebody who had the plague for fear they'd catch the illness and die. But the early Christians had a different approach. They understood that being a Christian meant that you visited the sick. And they did so with the confidence that if something happened to them and they caught the disease, well, their future was secure with Christ. They approached illness from a Christian perspective. Christians in the Roman Empire gained a reputation for being the most loving people and the most loyal people. What did people said of us? Well, I don't know much about the Bible or what my Christian, actually, my Christian neighbor really believes, but I'm really grateful that this Christian lives next door to me. I'm so glad to work with this Christian. I'm so glad this person is part of my family, or that they're my friends, because they're the most wonderful people to have around when you're in need. The sick man of these friends received God's forgiveness and God's healing. And it's his friends, you notice, who had the faith for him. You see, the faith here is with the friends, not in the person being prayed for. I read one commentator as part of preparing for this who just described faith for healing as schutzpah. Um, it's a Yiddish word that means brassiness, nerviness, going for it, pushing through the obstacles. And these men are carrying their friend in. But they can't get to Jesus because the crowd is surrounding his house. So what do they do? These friends climb up on the roof. They were actually probably digging through this roof with their bare hands through this thatched roof. But they're going to get their friend to Jesus. They're going to do what it takes to get their friend to Jesus. These friends are passionate for their friend. This morning, uh, do you know, have you recognized, have you realized that being a follower of Jesus does require intentional commitment and passion and energy to follow Jesus? The thing is this, even though I've read loads and loads of books on discipleship, you don't drift into discipleship. You don't drift into personal transformation. You don't drift into breaking a pattern of bad habits that are crushing you and crushing the life out of you and the people around you. At the beginning of 2020, our life following Jesus requires our whole hearts, minds, souls, and strengths as we help others too. There's a third group in this story we see in verses 5 to 7, the teachers of the law. These are the people schooled in the written law of God and in its oral interpretation. We've read about these as we've gone through Luke's gospel too. 
They were like a group of lawyers, the collective noun for a group of lawyers, David is. Too many, uh, we could say that. And what are the teach the law therefore? See, the thing is this. The teachers of the law are not in the house in order to get closer to God. They aren't actually interested to better understand Jesus. They aren't seeking understanding. They aren't seeking the Holy Spirit. They aren't there in order to learn and to grow and to correct their own lives or their own views. They're there like an investigative committee to find more evidence that something is wrong with Jesus. They aren't interested in finding out something good about Jesus. They're there to find out something bad. Do you notice they don't really care about the sick person? They don't care about the lost. They are the enforcers of orthodoxy. They are the judge and jury. They are the truth squad. And being honest, many of us get stuck here. Many of us get stuck here. Opposed to this person or that person, this group or that group, this leader or that leader. Taking mental note of all their failings, where they fall short. And it's an awful thing to do. To spend your time trying to pull down others, to pull down fellow Christians. You could be spending your time out there serving the Lord. You could be feeding the hungry. You could be comforting the lonely. You could be befriending the lost or the broken, encouraging others in their discipleship. But that wasn't what the scribes and Pharisees did. Please, 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 let's not be like that. Fourthly, we find the sick man himself. In Bible, you'll know, uh, for those of you who've read, but there is at different times a link between sin and sickness. We're going to explore different bits of this over the next period of time. But obviously, we know, for example, if you drink far too much, you get sclerosis of the liver eventually, probably. Or if you smoke regularly, you may get emphysema. We understand that there are consequences to our choices day by day. There are good choices and bad choices. If we continually make bad choices in our life, there will be bad consequences. But the book of Job stands as a great protest piece right at the center of the Bible. Telling anyone who reads the Bible that you must not embrace some kind of strict formula kind of relationship that ties together your personal merit with your health. There is biblically a general condition of sin and fullness in the whole of creation that we all share from the fall. But to link one's sickness to a specific sin, you better have a very clear conviction from the Holy Spirit, if that's the case, or a clear prophetic revelation. Otherwise, don't go there. But Jesus goes to the heart of the matter with this man. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And then later on in the passage we see, get up. Take your mat and walk. It's one of those passages where I think we see one of the greatest degrees of of Jesus bringing healing to this person in a very whole way. Forgiving him, 
physically healing him, restoring him apart that. And what we see in the Bible is that we see the Bible teaches us a holistic view of people. Human beings are viewed as whole people, body, soul, mind, and spirit, where everything interrelates. Um, I haven't got time to talk about that, but there's a, I want to just give you an example. I apologize if this is me talking about one of my good news stories. But when I was in Winchester, um, before here, one of the things I did, I was the hospital chaplain, and you'd be on call for a period of time. And when you got called out, when you're on call, you never knew what you're getting called to. And one early evening on a weekend, I was called out to the maternity unit to uh, a young couple who'd just given birth to a baby, and it's very unlikely that the baby would survive, and so they'd asked for a chaplain to come and to... Uh, to comfort them, to bring along. The baby was still alive when I arrived there. And um, I arrived there, the couple are in distress. I go into the maternity unit, and actually a friend of mine who was the um, pediatrician at the hospital there was actually fighting for this tiny baby's life. I have to say, of all the things I've seen, it's one of the most horrific scenes I think I've ever witnessed and pretty much, um, he asked, actually, if I'd just stay in the room. He brought all his skills. The nurses brought all their skills in the, flight, in the fight for this tiny girl's life. And I sat there, stood there, sorry, and pretty much this is the only time I've ever done it like this in my whole life, but I pretty much prayed in tongues for three hours. I couldn't do anything. I brought nothing to the party other than being who I was and the fact that I could pray. Eventually, I left that room thinking I didn't know what the answer would be, but then I essentially got a message to say the baby had survived. And then about a month later, the parents sent me this little picture of this baby girl who was baptized a month later. We bring all our skills, all our gifts, and we bring God into the heart. I can't tell you that my prayers healed or God did, but I'm pretty certain that God, with the help of all those other things, brought healing to this young life. Now, there are times when I've done that and prayed not in that way, and we haven't seen healing. But that doesn't mean we give up. We just keep praying that God will come and heal, and he wants to bring restoration to us. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came, ushering in the future age of the kingdom of God, which is holistic and it's whole. The salvation that Jesus came to bring was designed to touch the universe in all its dimensions. The salvation that Jesus won at the cross was not just for yours and my soul. Jesus intends healing and salvation for every part of us, indeed for the whole of the universe. That's what he came to save. Jesus' salvation is designed to heal our relationships and our marriages. Jesus' salvation is designed to heal all our hurts from the past, the power of God, our work in healing and restoring us. Jesus' salvation is designed to deliver us from the evil one and all the schemes of the devil. Jesus' salvation is designed to heal our bodies. Jesus' salvation is designed to bring restoration to society and heal the world from poverty. Jesus' salvation is designed to heal the environment. Healing the whole person 
is the ministry of the church. And lastly, the last actor in this drama is Jesus. Um, those of you who know scripture will know that in the Gospel of Mark, we find this phrase that you'll find in your Bibles in today's passage, the Son of Man, in reference to Jesus 14 times. And the, this, this um, phrase, the Son of Man, only comes from Jesus' mouth. No one else ever calls Jesus the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself that. And it could refer back to the Son of Man that we see in Daniel 7, who's given authority over all the earth. But I think Jesus is defining himself without other people's expectations of what he is to be. And here, what do we see? What do we see? Jesus presents himself as the forgiver of sins. What does it mean to forgive? What does God do when he forgives us when we go through that bitter or in this service when we ask for God's forgiveness? To forgive means to reject revenge. To forgive means to let go, to let go of the past. To leave it in the past. To forgive means to not require the payment for a debt. The Bible says that God forgives us because he doesn't reckon sin to our account. We incur a debt, we owe, but we don't have to pay. The Bible said God covers our sins. We sinned in the plain sight of all, but God hides our sins in his great compassion, his mercy and his love so that no one can see them. The Bible says that God puts our wrongdoing behind his back. The Bible says that God removes our transgressions as we sung this morning, as far as the east is from the west. Our transgressions seem stuck to us. But God removes them. God removes them God removes them and takes them to a place where neither we nor anyone else can find them. Or if you're not sure and you want another kind of biblical analogy, the Bible says that God blots out our sins. We spill ink on a nice, new, clean, white shirt, but God makes that ink stain disappear completely clean completely clean and the Bible says miracle of all miracles God doesn't even remember our sins they're gone gone from reality gone from judgment because Christ died in our place our God of love That's what he's done for you and for me. And we are forgiven who receive Christ. And the experience of forgiveness uh, releases not only healing for our relationship with God, being made right with God, can bring healing to our emotional lives, to our bodies as well. Excuse me. I've lost it now. 
but healing to our, our relationships with one another. A measure of our understanding and our re- realization of practicing forgiveness is that our relationships will reflect that kind of health. And he heals our bodies too. God is interested in healing our whole persons. This is what he came to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you see each one of us here this morning as whole people who understands what shaped us, what molded us, what affects us. You understand with a clarity that we don't see why we are where we are. And Father, I pray, would you fall afresh upon us this morning by your Spirit? And I pray for some people here, particularly, who are constantly weighed down with sins of the past or still holding on to sins of the past, would you set them free in Jesus' name? As they turn in repentance, as they turn to you in forgiveness, would they know the complete freedom of being forgiven and wiped completely clean, given a completely fresh new start set right with you? Would you clean us up? Would you set us free? In the power of the cross of your resurrection, would you fall afresh and minister your grace? We continue to be a people and a place that love to encounter you, our living God, Jesus Christ. Amen.